Good morning and welcome in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you turn to your bulletins, you will see there is one printed announcement, and that's just the monthly reminder that our next fellowship meal, Lord willing, will be next Sunday following morning worship, February 11th, and details of what you are asked to bring if you're a regular part of our congregation are there for you. And then a second announcement, but not uh, printed in uh, the bulletin, uh, that is to announce that the memorial service for our sister Thelma uh, will be held, Lord willing, next Saturday, February 10th, uh, 2 p.m. here at the church building. So that's the memorial service for Thelma next Saturday, February 10th, 2 p.m. here at the church building. So with those announcements made, let us now prepare our hearts to worship God. The call to worship this morning comes from the book of Psalms and Psalm 136. Psalm 136 and reading verses 1 through 3. Let us hear God's Word. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His steadfast love endures forever. Amen. And so far, God's holy word. Let us together now offer up the sacrifice of praise as we join in singing hymn number 20. Hymn number 20, give to our God immortal praise. If you're able, please stand to sing.
will please remain standing and turn to hymn number 313. To thy temple I repaired. 313. Please be seated. And now let us come to God in prayer. Let us all pray.
Almighty and eternal God, we bow down before you again this morning. We come to worship you, the triune God, the one true and living God. We come to give you the praise and the honor and the glory. We come to give thanks to you, even as the God of gods and Lord of lords. We come to give you thanks for you are good, as the psalmist declares, your steadfast love endures forever. And so we would come and ask at the outset of our worship that you would help us even to do that which is our greatest privilege and our highest duty, to praise you with all that you have made us to be, with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Grant us, O Lord, to worship you to reverence your holy and mighty name, and to give you all that is your due. As we think of this holy duty, we recognize, O Lord, that by nature we would have no desire to do any such thing, that by nature we are rebels and lawbreakers, sinners in your sight those who have no love for you, only love for ourselves. And so it is we come again, O Lord, in the knowledge of what you have shown us that we are by nature, that we would come to confess our sins, sins of word and thought and deed, sins of things done in this past week and this very day against you and your holy law and sins of things left undone, which you have rightly commanded that we should do. Lord, for all these sins, we ask your forgiveness. We plead that you might cleanse us from all of our sins, not for any good thing that is in us by nature, not for any merits that we could present, not for any that thing that we could seek deserving of such thing, but for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. We are thankful for Him who is the great Savior of such sinners as we are. We are thankful for His great work of redemption. We are thankful for His life of perfect obedience as great probation keeper. We are thankful for His death upon the cross that great atonement made in His own blood, that sins might be washed away. We are thankful for such a complete Savior and for such complete salvation. And so, as we come pleading His merits, we ask, O Lord, that we might receive that which is promised even in Him, forgiveness of sins and eternal life. O Lord, hear our prayer. Our Father, then we come with our prayers of thanksgiving. We are thankful for all of your mercies to us, both in matters temporal and spiritual. We are thankful even for the rain that is falling, even as we gather this morning. 
We are thankful for the refreshing of the land, for the providing of uh, water for the hot summer months to come. Lord, we are thankful for Your goodness and faithfulness to send the sun and the rain upon righteous and unrighteous, even in Your common grace. We thank You for food upon our tables this morning, clean water to drink, the shelter of our homes when the weather is cold and inclement, that we had dry beds in which to sleep warm last evening. For all of these good gifts, O Lord, we give You thanks. And most of all, O Lord, we give You thanks for our spiritual benefits and blessings. We thank You for Your grace, even which has enabled us to walk with You, to plod this pilgrim way in the week that is past, and even again this Lord's day. We thank You for sustaining us in that narrow way that leads to life, even in the midst of difficulty and trial, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of suffering. Yet, O oh Lord, Your faithfulness has been there morning by morning renewed to us, and for this we give You thanks. Our Father, we do come with our prayers of petition and intercession. We pray for this world in all of its need. We pray for those areas of conflict and warfare. We pray for those areas where there are heightened tensions. We pray for the leaders of the world, O oh Lord, as they have to make important and significant decisions to balance various priorities, to respond to provocations. Lord, we pray that You would give them wisdom that they would acknowledge that they are not sufficient to this great task without Your help. Help them, we pray. And we ask that even through this means, we might experience ourselves, as we pray for many others, greater measures of civil peace and order, even in this troubled and fallen world. Lord, we pray for our own land. We pray for our leaders, even as they seek to deal with matters of foreign policy and domestic. We pray for our leaders during times of election, those in office, those desiring office, at each branch and level of government, O Lord. We ask that You would have mercy upon us in days of clamoring voices in days of many opinions of men, of the solutions of men proposed, of the solutions of men that fail. Lord, have mercy upon us and grant that each one that You raise up to office would acknowledge You, that they would acknowledge that there is no authority in this world that You have not first established, that all authority in this created order is under Your sovereign governing, even from that established throne which shall never be moved in heaven above. Father, have mercy upon us, we pray. And then, O oh Lord, we do pray for all of our first responders. Even during this uh, days of storm, uh, many called out to respond to emergencies. We pray that You would watch over them and help them. We pray for our fire uh, officers and firefighters. 
We pray for our law enforcement community. We pray for our paramedics and the wider medical community. Whatever may be their individual roles and tasks, O oh Lord, we pray that You would help them. We pray that You would guard them. We thank You for their service to our community. And we pray, O oh Lord, that You might be their help and strength. Lord, then we do pray for the needs of our own congregation. We do continue to pray for those who are bereaved and sorrowing. We ask that You would continue to be their comfort, even as we look forward to memorial service on Saturday. We ask, O oh Lord, that You would grant strength, even as we mourn. Yet we pray, O oh Lord, that You would uphold the family, that You would uphold the church family, and that we might be enabled to rejoice in the great reality that our sister Thelma is in the glory, and yet comfort our hearts, O oh Lord, in the time of temporal separation. Lord, Your steadfast love endures forever. May we know, O oh Lord, the truth and reality of that today, throughout this week, and in the days to come. Father, we pray on for those who are sick. We remember again to pray for baby Charlotte and ask that You would continue to help her. We thank You for sustaining her life through these many months. We thank You for her recent recovery from the latest surgery. We pray on, O oh Lord, for those responsible for her care, for the doctors and nurses at Stanford. We are thankful for them. We pray that You'd continue to give them great wisdom. Lord, we pray, if it be Your will, that You would provide a heart for Charlotte in Your time and in Your circumstance. Lord, we know that this is a difficult prayer to pray, for in the provision of it, O oh Lord, we know that it brings sorrow to another family. But Lord, we rest these things in Your sovereign hands, and we pray that You would be merciful. We pray for Mark and Nicole and the other children that You continue to help them and sustain them through this long trial. O oh Lord, You are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. May they know again the reality of that precious promise of Your Word today. For others, O oh Lord, we are thankful for those restored to us this Lord's Day who have been sick this past week. Again, we see Your faithfulness and goodness in these kind mercies. We pray on, O oh Lord, for those who continue to be sick. Some may be even amongst us, O oh Lord, to whom You have given the strength sufficient to be here, but still battling pain and difficulty and suffering. Lord, help them, we pray, for those at home, perhaps, O oh Lord, on sick beds, perhaps, O oh Lord, with little strength with great pain. Lord, have mercy upon them. Turn them to Yourself, O Lord, and may they seek You and find You to be the God of all sufficient grace. And so, Lord, we pray for all of our needs as they are represented here before You. You see all of our hearts. You see us in all of our need. Grant Your mercies to us, we pray even as we ask them in Christ's name. Amen.
For the consecutive reading of God's Word in the New Testament, we turn again this morning to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, and this morning we are going to read verse 1 through verse 14. Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, and reading verses 1 through 14. Would you please rise, if you are able, for the reading of the Holy Word of God. Luke chapter 4, and reading at verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. Amen. And so far, God's holy word, please be seated. And now again, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Let us all pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask for your help as we would turn to the proclamation of your word. We ask that you would deliver us from all distractions. We pray that you would strengthen us in body and mind and soul 
Grant, O Lord, the great gifts of repentance and faith to each and every one gathered here. Grant that we might hear Your Word and that we might respond in faith. Hear our prayers, forgive our sins, for we ask them in Christ's name. Amen. Please now turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews and chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and we are going to read verses 1 through 6. Hebrews chapter 11, and commencing to read at verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And through it, he being dead, still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of our God abides forever. As we have noted, in the last few weeks, Hebrews chapter 11 presents Old Testament believers as witnesses. Having received themselves divine testimony, these Old Testament saints participated in and pointed to those unseen, hoped-for realities of which the author to the Hebrews speaks, those things which have been brought to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so here the author of Hebrews characterizes in chapter 11 some key aspects of the faith of these Old Testament witnesses, even as he tells us in verse 1. And it's in connection with that in connection with which God, having testified in the Old Testament to these saints of these invisible objects of their hope, 
there then witness to the saints of the first century, to the saints of the 21st century, and to the saints in between, even as we read in verse 2. We see them persevering in that faith, and that is the exhortation to the saints, first century, 21st century, and centuries in between. They are that cloud of witnesses then, the Old Testament saints, even as we read of them in Hebrews 12 verse 1, to the original readers of this epistle and to us this morning. Well then, as we come to verses 5 and 6, here the author states again, as he will state many times as we go through this chapter, it was by faith that Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And once again highlights divine testimony as the basis of Enoch's faith. We're going to consider three things this morning. First of all, a translated witness. Secondly, saving faith. And then thirdly, seeking and finding God. So, a translated witness, saving faith, and seeking and finding God. So, first of all, then, a translated witness, verse 5a. After Abel, the next Old Testament patriarch, the author mentions is Enoch. The account of Enoch we have in brief uh, span in the book of Genesis, chapter 5, verses 18 through 24. In that passage, it states twice... And remember, when something is repeated in Hebrew Scripture, it is for emphasis. So, here we have this twice, Enoch walked with God. Genesis 5, 22, and then Genesis 5, verse 24. And then we read a parallel statement to that, again, common in Hebrew uh, literature, Again, verse 24, he was not, for God took him. As the author of Hebrews takes up Genesis chapter 5 and verses 18 through 24, as we read Hebrews 11 verse 5, here he follows the language of the Greek version of the Old Testament called the 70th, the LXX, if you like the formal title of it. So, the Hebrew translated into the Greek. And so, we read in Hebrews 11 verse 5, Enoch pleased God. That's the Greek translation of the Hebrew, Enoch walked with God. You might say, well, is that legitimate for them to translate it like that? Um, the answer is yes. Yes, because it is uh, an interpretation of um, what it means to walk with God. What does it mean to walk with God? Um, this is what's called an idiom. All languages have idioms. Um, they are phrases, they are sayings that are to be understood and interpreted. So, what does it mean to walk with God? It means to 
please God. And so in the Hebrew, literally rendered, Enoch walked with God and translated through the Greek into our English, uh, we have Enoch pleased God. That's not something different. It's exactly the same thing. Now, as we come to verses 5 and 6 in Hebrews chapter 11, there are two things specifically which demand our attention and on which we should focus. First of all, following his great theme in this chapter regarding faith, the author here asserts that it was by faith that Enoch was taken away or taken up and that he was not found so that he would not see death. It was by faith that that occurred. And then secondly, on which we need to focus, the author here once again underlines divine testimony as foundational for Enoch's faith. Hebrews 11:5 b For before he was taken, he had this testimony, the Scripture says, that he pleased God, so that Enoch could join, as it were, this great cloud of witnesses from this chapter for our benefit in our perseverance in like faith. Now, as we've had to do in the last few weeks, we're going to uh, have to do some uh, language study again this morning. Um, please don't be weary of that. Uh, it is necessary if we are to understand what the Scripture says, um, not only in individual words, but as the um, uh, phrases, the sentences are put together. They're done so purposefully as they are in all of Scripture. But particularly here this morning, verses 5 and 6 are inseparably linked together. Um, now, if you're anything like me, um, I am thankful that the Scriptures were um, noted by verses and chapters so we can find things. Um, you've heard me say this before, I'm not going to dwell long on it, um, but in the uh, days of the Old Testament and coming into that transitional time as our Lord came, you remember Jesus went into the synagogue in Nazareth. They gave Him a copy of Isaiah, but He didn't turn to a passage by chapter and verse. Those scrolls were not versified, as we would say. The Scripture was not written in chapters and verses. You know that, most of you. If you didn't, you know now. That was not how it was given. This was done later to help people like you and me find particular passages. Our Lord knew His Old Testament, so He could just turn, it says, in Luke's Gospel, to the place where it said. And sometimes I say all of that because when sometimes we come to verses individually like 5 and 6, we read them very individually, separately, as if, well, that's the first sentence, stop. Next sentence, stop. Um, and, and we don't think about the connection. Uh, verses 5 and 6 are closely connected, inseparably linked. They are linked together to demonstrate that Enoch did live by that faith which is required for righteousness and life. The author has already stated that principle generally, Hebrews 10 verse 38. You remember that. Of course, he's reflecting upon the great statement of the prophet Habakkuk, 
uh, in that passage, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. Well, Enoch is one such, and that's demonstrated here by the author in verses 5 and 6. Notice what the text says. At the beginning of verse 5, the focus is upon God's translation, His taking up of Enoch from this world to heaven. But the focus is not just on that event as an event, but it's upon that event as the outcome of his faith. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Notice again the repetition in that first part of the verse. Um, sometimes, you know, when you begin language as a, a young child and student, um, if you write in your assignment too many repetitive things, you might get a little critique when that's submitted and say, well, there's nothing wrong with what you've written, but it's just a little too repetitive. Don't keep saying the same thing so, so much the same, so closely together. So your teacher might encourage you to have a little more variation and put it down in the next paragraph maybe or something like that. Um, when they uh, wrote uh, the Scripture like this, particularly um, from uh, a background as a Hebrew, um, as you've known for, for a long time, um, this is the way you emphasize things. So it's not you critique a Hebrew author uh, by saying you're being overly repetitive. This is him, the way of him to say, pay attention here. I'm trying to draw your attention to something very important. By faith, what? Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. He was not found because God had taken him. Of course, this great emphasis by way of repetition has in view the believer's own hope, same hope as Enoch, to escape death. We will not escape it in identical manner. None of us have any promise, or I would suggest to you, you should have no anticipation that God is going to translate you, take you up, without passing through death, unless the Lord returns in glory, in which case we'll all be translated as those who trust in the Lord Jesus. But in normal providence, this was an unusual circumstance. But it points to something that is true for all believers, that in Jesus Christ we shall escape death in the sense of its conquering over us. We may pass through it, and if the Lord does not return, then, believer, we will pass through it, but it will not be victorious over us. We will be taken up, first in soul, immediately, to be in the presence of the Lord, and then at the last great day, reunited with a resurrection body. That's what's in view here. The Christian's own hope to escape death through the great work of our great high priest who has been constantly in view in the book of Hebrews all the way from chapter 1. Enoch 
Though he may seem a long, long way from us, both in time and space, historically, we may not know a great deal about him, and hence we may think, well, I feel very distant. I, I don't feel very connected with him as a fellow believer. Christian, you are, and you should be, because he had that same faith as you have, if you have true faith in Jesus Christ. Same faith as believers today, and is a witness to the reality of the great object of the faith of all true Christians, Christ and His saving work. Well, then that brings us in the second place to saving faith, verses 5b, the second part of verse 5 and verse 6. The remaining part of our text here, verses 5 and 6, shows how the Scriptures themselves, what we might call the biblical witness, tells us that Enoch had saving faith. Well, you might say to me, and perhaps some of the young people, children even, if you're reading your Bibles very closely, and let me encourage you to do that, you'll say, well, it doesn't say that exactly. Where does it say Enoch had saving faith? You won't that find that in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, and you won't find it in Genesis 5, 18 through 24 either. So, how do we know that? Well, you can't just simply assert it. You hear that many, from many people today, don't they? They just assert things. Well, it's so because I say so. No, no, no. But it is here in the text. Let me try and show you. Enoch received testimony that he pleased God. That's what the text tells us. And because of what it says subsequently, verses 5b and 6, since that text tells us it is impossible to please God apart from faith, then what is the logical conclusion? Well then, if Enoch pleased God, then he must have exercised such faith, right? And so, his translation here, his being caught up to heaven, is by that faith, by such believing faith. I think that's a stretch. It's exactly what the author says. Notice how he says in the second part of verse 5, he begins it with a very small word, but a very important word, for. We might render it because. So, what came before is because of what he's now going to say. And that little word for in verse 5b shows that all that the author says in his exposition of what we call verse 5b and 6 is the underlying foundation and reason for what he states. He's not just making an assertion in verse 5a. He's stating it resting on an underlying foundation and legitimate reason, verses 5b and 6. Again, this is very common for Hebrews to do. Um, we tend not to be in that kind of um, culture and uh, perhaps not used to studying language in that way. Um, we tend to much more, if uh, you've studied much of English, um, to, to work on, you build up to your conclusion, right? Uh, you make all of your evidentiary statements, and then you come to your great conclusion, therefore, 
and you draw your conclusion from the evidence you've presented. Um, Hebrews do it the other way around. Um, there's nothing particularly right or wrong about method, um, but what we have here is usual. This is not unusual. Um, they state the conclusion. By faith, Enoch was not because God took him. For because, in what the author says, verses 5b and 6, for these reasons, because of this. Now, one of the vital parts, therefore, in the author's demonstration of Enoch's faith is that he says, before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. There I am uh, reading from the New King James uh, translation. If you have a New American Standard uh, Bible on your knee uh, this morning, it makes it even more explicit in how it renders it. It says it like this, Enoch obtained the witness that he was pleasing to God. That's what the text says. Now, we are not told in Genesis 5 how it is in the details that Enoch received that testimony. The Lord did not see fit, therefore we can rightly conclude it is not important for to know how that form of revelation came to him in his lifetime. But it is stated clearly and explicitly here that it did. Enoch walked with God, we can render it, was um, pleased God, um, and that was known, that was testified, evidenced, witnessed to him by divine revelation. It gave him proof of the reality of the things for which he hoped, the yet unseen things of which the author to the Hebrews is focusing our attention, um, eternal life to come in Jesus Christ, the Lord, in the fullness of its consummate form in the kingdom of God. Um, what we do read in the Genesis 5 um, account, uh, verse 22, was that Enoch walked with God a very long time. It was 300 years. In those days, uh, people lived a much longer time uh, than we necessarily do today. However long uh, life you may have, however is long the longest uh, living uh, person or the person in your family who lived and then died, I'm pretty sure it was not 300 years. I'm pretty sure of that. If I'm wrong, you can come and tell me, and uh, we'll talk about that a little bit, uh, maybe uh, after service in the foyer. But God gave 300 years of life to Enoch. And that at least implies this, amongst many other things, that here was a lifetime, a very, very long lifetime, in which Enoch walked in fellowship, as we might put it in close companionship with the Lord, as one who pleased God, who walked in God's ways. Enoch's faith rested firmly on divine testimony, even as he walked with him during that long life. 
Well, what was Enoch's faith rooted in ultimately, though? Faith in what? Well, of course, it was in the Lord's promise to send a Savior for sinners like him. Of course, the first announcement of that great promise is even earlier than Genesis 5, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, we call it the first revelation of the gospel promise. Like the technical word, it's called the proto-evangelion. It comes from the Greek, proto-first-evangelion, the good news, the gospel. The first announcement of the gospel. Enoch would have known that gospel promise as he is in the great line of the faithful in the seed of the woman. And so, his faith was in God's, yes, embryonic promise. It was not all fully revealed in all of the details of who and how that seed of the woman would come and fulfill the great promised salvation. But what was revealed was sufficient until the time would fully come, Galatians 4.4, when the full revelation of the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, um, the Son of God taking to Himself, assuming a true human nature and being born of a woman, did not have all of that revelation, the great privilege that we do at this point in redemptive history. But what he had was sufficient, that God had promised to send the Savior, the Anointed One, the Messiah, to save his people. And so, Enoch here is validated, we might say, verified to be one of those, now to use the language of Hebrews 11, those who draw near to God in faith. And as a result, he himself was one of those who would receive the rewards, the reward for which he sought, that he would be one of those granted the great blessing of being in the presence of God, even the great promise which is extended to all those who will draw near to God by faith in the way that he has prescribed. Of course, in the full light of the New Testament Scriptures, that extended invitation, that free offer of the gospel, of course, is in the new and living way, as the author of Hebrews puts it, um, in and through Jesus Christ, the Lord. He's made that clear, hasn't he? Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25, and Hebrews 10, verse 35, um, even reflecting the great promise from the Old Testament, Psalm 73, verse 25. And even here in 11, uh, Hebrews 11, 6, the author here clarifies the content, the content of that embryonic faith of Genesis 3, 15, uh, faith in that promise, when he says that one must believe that God exists and that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. That's, that's what he's doing there in that part um, of, uh, of verse 6. Um, he's, he's clarifying um, what was in very um, seed form, embryonic form, as Enoch would have understood it in the Old 
Testament. And hence, again, verse 6 is not some comprehensive statement of the object of saving faith. And um, if we think it is, we will get ourselves into all sorts of trouble and difficulty trying to interpret this passage in that manner. It does not intend to be a comprehensive statement of the object of saving faith. Rather, what the author is doing here, he is bringing out some particular specific thing that relates to Enoch. That's what he's dealing with. Even as Enoch sought God and was brought into his presence, even by such faith. Well, then that brings us in the third place to seeking and finding God. And again, here we are focusing principally on verse 6, seeking and finding God. When we speak of God giving rewards, um, he who comes to God must believe that He is, and He is the reward of those who diligently seek Him. Some Christians start to become very concerned. Um, they can even get a little agitated because they think that if we speak in such ways, then that is to contradict the clear biblical teaching elsewhere that salvation is by grace alone. They say, well, now, wait a minute. You keep saying, um, I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Um, what's this now to do with God rewarding faith? I must believe that God is, and He rewards those who diligently seek Him. Uh, they might put it this way. Um, if salvation is a matter of getting reward then surely you must be talking about some works-based salvation now. I'm, I'm doing something. I have to seek God, and if I do that, then God will reward me, right? That's not what you're saying when you say by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Um, so which is it? Well, we want to say this. If salvation is a matter of getting your reward, then... We certainly are talking about a workspace religion. If you simply say you can earn it, you can get it by being rewarded for doing something, that's a workspace religion, and that is not biblical Christianity. Let's say that clearly, first and foremost. That's not what the author is saying here. He is not saying you can earn your salvation. Seek after God enough and He'll reward you with salvation. It's not some great quest you have to go on. It's not some ten Herculean tasks you have to accomplish. And if you do well enough and try hard enough, God is going to give you His reward of salvation. That is not. Did I say it clearly enough? I don't really want to raise my voice anymore. If I have to, I will. Um, I wrote in my notes just so I'd make this clear. I capitalize this. This is not biblical Christianity. So what is the author saying here? Because he does say it, right? Those who come to God must believe that He is, and He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. What verse 6 is doing, and again, you've got to remember the context here. What the author is doing here. He is simply stating that God is the one who determines the blessings as well as 
the condemnation, as is appropriate to men, women, boys, and girls. Let me quote one of the commentators. I think he says it far better than ever I could. He says this, to have faith, we must realize and accept that we have to deal with this God, that His judgment about us is the vital one, and that we had better seek Him. That is, we had better gain His favor. He goes on to say, quote, faith must turn to God as the one who saves it must come to him seeking reward, seeking favor, seeking his grace, end quote. You see why that's so important to get right. What the author is saying here is God is the one who you must seek if you are to be saved. There is salvation in no one else. And as you seek him, you must seek him for what? To say, well, you know what, God, I've done all of these things, so I think that deserves. No, 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 no. God's blessing, God's favor is by grace. Here it's called reward, but it's a seeking of the divine favor upon the basis upon which it can only be granted to sinners grace in and through Jesus Christ. If you will not seek God in that way, then what is left to you? Well, truly then, a works-based religion, which is doomed to fail. You can never do enough to merit in your own standing the favor of God. There is only one who has earned that, and that is Jesus Christ. Go that route, you are doomed to failure. What else then is left to you? Well, then just to ignore this God and say, you know what? I'm not even going to pay any attention to this. And in the end, that is what unbelief is, isn't it, by definition? A refusal to seek God in the way that He has prescribed and to receive His blessing in the way that He has determined. That's unbelief by definition. And yet, that's what so many people do today, isn't it? They might even agree intellectually, people today, maybe you are one of them this morning, they agree that, well, okay, God is. All right, I'll, I'll concede that. It's not, I don't think that costs me too much to concede that. but I'm not going to seek Him in His way and receive from His hand in His way. I refuse to do that. I'll serve all sorts of other worldly gods with their unreasonable demands. I'll enslave myself to them gladly, freely, willingly. And that's the great folly of sin, isn't it? But I refuse to have dealings with the God of the Bible, even with the great grace He freely offers to sinners like you and me in His Son, Jesus Christ. Let me try and put it very simply and very practically here. 
Do you have to deal with this God this morning, whoever you are? Do you have to deal with Him? Do you not only have to believe in Him, but also seek after Him if you would be saved? The answer according to God's own word and revelation in the Scriptures is a simple answer. Yes. No exceptions, whoever you are. Well, why, you might say, why is that the case? Firstly, God tells us that He is a holy God, therefore He is a holy judge who will surely punish every guilty sinner. That is why you have to have dealings with this God on the basis that He has prescribed if you would be saved. You must seek Him and find Him in the one that He has sent, Jesus Christ. And if you refuse to do that, then He will surely punish every guilty sinner. At the last great day, everyone will stand before God, and those outside of Christ will stand for judgment the book that we're thinking in our all-age Sunday school, the book of the Revelation, the last book of Holy Scripture, makes that clear, as is elsewhere, as we would say, it's everywhere in the Scripture, that truth. But if you want one particular text to turn to this morning, Revelation 20, verse 12, the assembly on that last great day for judgment. And if you think that outside of Jesus Christ, you know, it'll be okay, I, I'm not perfect, but, but I think on balance, um, uh, you know, I, I, I do think I've done enough. People think about those old-fashioned balances. Um, I think of some my grandmother used to have in a kitchen, and she used to weigh out her ingredients every uh, Saturday when she would do her baking. You know, the one where you put the weight on one side and the receptacle, and you weigh out the, uh, the flour and the sugar and the butter and all of that. And, um, you know, when you've put enough of the ingredient in for the weight, balances out. Put in too much, you get more, right? Um, and, and people think in that way. Maybe that's how you think this morning. That somehow, against the divine standard on this side, you have done enough to kind of hold the balance, and it's going to be okay. I have to tell you as lovingly as I can this morning, it will not. If you are relying upon your own efforts and merits and accomplishments, you cannot and you will not pour enough into that receptacle on that balance to counter the divine standard. And with that standard, the infraction, the breaking of God's law that is against you. You just will not do it. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. Can it be said any more simply to you, whoever you are here this morning? Maybe you've listened to this again and again and again and again. It was true the first time it was said to you. It is still true today. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
What's the consequence of that then? Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is what? Death. And not just a passing out of conscious existence, but what the Scripture calls the second death, the eternal punishment, the bearing of the wrath of God upon body and soul forever and ever and ever. That's the consequence. Who is liable to that? Each and every one of us as we come into this world. I'm just not pointing the finger at you and thinking I'm exempt from that. This is how we come into this world. Guilty sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. One commentator then in the light of Hebrews 11, 5 and 6 says then, quote, For this reason we had better seek God in the way that He has prescribed so that we might gain His favor even in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the first reason. If you are yet in your sins, you should, you must seek God and come to know Him as that one who does reward those, grant His blessing of favor in and only in His Son, Jesus Christ. But there's another reason here, and this is the reason which is particularly in front of us here in the context of the record of the life of Enoch. And that is that there is a life after this one, and not one only of the condemnation of sinners. There certainly is that. But also, there is the great hope and offer of eternal life, a life of consummate blessing with God to be known and enjoyed forever. What does the Scripture say about Enoch, both in Genesis and in Hebrews? He did not die in this world. One day, this godly man was there, and the next, he was no longer in this world. We don't know whether people looked for him, how long they looked for him. I think it's probably fair and reasonable to say that somebody did look for him. Somebody disappears, then somebody notices, don't they? Even in a much uh, smaller community than the big populations of our cities. Um, whatever was the case of who and how long that they looked for him, he was not to be found. Wherever they looked for him, they did not find him. And so, they may not and probably did not know what had happened to him. Scripture doesn't tell us. But guess what? We do know what happened to him, right? How do we know? Because God has revealed it here in His Scriptures. We know what happened to Enoch. God took him from his life in this world and translated him into the world to come, to heaven itself, without passing through physical death. What is that to teach us? 
the record of Enoch being translated from this world tells us that there is a life after death, and in particular it tells us that he was one amongst many who would enjoy in that life communion with God, walking with God, and enjoying the blessing of that in a way that he to date had never enjoyed in the fullness in this world, that God was the one who rewarded those who diligently sought Him. And the reward was everlasting life in Jesus Christ. One commentator puts it like this. He says, quote, Indeed, this is the way we should think about rewards from God. What greater reward could we ever desire than God Himself? End quote. F.F. F. Bruce, great uh, scholar, commentator, puts it like this. He says, quote, The reward desired by those who seek Him is the joy of finding Him. He Himself proves to be their exceeding joy. Quoting from Psalm 43, verse 4. What is the reward for Christians today? You believe this morning. What is our reward? It's the same one that Enoch received. Now, you're not going to enter into it, as I said earlier, necessarily, and I think most unlikely, by being translated out of this world. But you will receive the same reward, which is everlasting life, eternal life in Jesus Christ. How do I know that? How can you know that? Because it is God's free gift to all who turn to Him in faith, who all who seek Him in true faith. That's what Romans 6.23 says if you read the whole verse. We read the first half with regard to the warning of flee, seek God whilst you have opportunity. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 says. But it doesn't stop there. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. We see that in the experience of Enoch, the man who pleased God, who walked with God by faith, and that is the experience of all true believers. In this man, Enoch, we see the power of Christ's resurrection life, and that new life you too may have this morning by faith in the Son of God. As we start to draw to a close, we might ask ourselves then, well, if God is the rewarder of those who seek Him, as He truly is, what does that really mean then? What does it mean to seek God? How do I do it, you might say? Well, first of all, as a guilty sinner, you do it by the way of repentance and faith seeking forgiveness of your sins by the mercy of God. And you will find that He freely gives to all who seek such reward and favor. But it also means, as is the emphasis of Enoch's life here, not that Enoch did not have to repent and trust in the Lord to save him, he did, but the focus here in the narrative as we see him then walking with God, pleasing God, it means then to 
live your life in that way of gratitude and thankfulness to God for being the recipient of such great salvation. It means seeking that which is, in the end, the great chief end of our lives, as the great first question of the catechism puts it. What is man's chief end? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what it means to seek after God. Well, so what will I find if I do that? What will I find if I seek after God? Well, here Enoch again gives the answer. You'll find life, eternal life, a life that goes beyond the grave in this world, a life in the glory of heaven above. What will I find if I seek after God in true faith? I will find the true answer to the great problem of death, the answer to the great enemy, the last great enemy as Paul calls it, death itself. We've been reminded in recent days of sorrow because of death. If the Lord tarries, it probably will not be the last time. I cannot say that definitely for each one of us, but there's a great probability. As is the case that before the death of our sister, there was sorrow at the death of others. That is the pattern in this world because of the curse of the holy, righteous God upon a sinful world, death. But here is the great answer to that. Here is the great answer that we don't end up in despair facing death, either our own death or the death of loved ones, family, friends, co-workers, whatever relationship we might sustain to them. God spared Enoch death by faith. He walked with God. He was pleasing to God. And for us, it means similar triumph as believers. Not identical in the way in which we'll experience you. Let me keep saying, I don't think you're going to be translated. You disappear out of sight, then I'm going to be proven wrong this morning. And God will do whatever God wishes to do, but I don't think that is the promise of Holy Scripture, that that's going to be a repetitive, frequent experience of a believer, to be translated to glory. Two, it's recorded in Scripture, and two only, Enoch and Elijah. So that's not what we're speaking about here. What we are speaking about is a similar triumph over death. Yes, we may still have to pass through it as our sister did. But that death was no sting. It was no victor. And that's the glory. Delivered from its great consequence. And so for the believer, death is but the open door to the fullness of life eternal life in Jesus Christ, that into which we have begun, even in this world as believers, united to Christ by faith, but that into which we enter in greater, consummate blessing, first of all in what we call the intermediate stage, the soul with Christ. 
forever and ever. And then on the last great day, with a resurrection body. And so whatever afflictions we have to endure, in whatever way we have to die, in whatever way we might witness others dying, and death shows the great weakness, doesn't it, of man, to be able to do anything himself, but over that one is the great word of Christ. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. That's the glory, isn't it? And we see that he had pictured in Enoch. Well, last thing. If you seek Him, can you be assured that you will find Him? Could it be that you look for Him and He's not there? Or He refuses to be found by you? He hides Himself from you. If you seek Him, the promise of the Scripture is you will find Him. God rewards those who diligently seek Him. But as we read this text, and it's so important to read this text in the light of all the rest of Scripture, you do not do it ultimately on your own. What did Jesus say, John 6, 44? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. What does that mean? It means that if you do seek God, according to the exhortation that we read of in Hebrews 11.6, it is because the Lord first sought and found you. That's what it means. And that's why it can be guaranteed that you will find Him. It's because He has first sought you. Why did Jesus say He had come into this world? to seek and to save the lost. That's what Jesus says. Those who seek Him, therefore, He rewards with Himself. And for that, we give God thanks. Those who walk with Him in this life, He will certainly bring to Himself in the consummate blessing of eternal life and fellowship with God conquering death and the grave, even for a fellowship of joy that will last forever and ever. Whoever you are this morning, seek after this God. Find Him whilst you have the day of salvation. Know this great joy of eternal life in Jesus Christ the Lord. May God so grant it to each one of us. Amen. Father in heaven, we pray that you would indeed seal your word to our hearts. We pray that you would warn those who are yet in their sins outside of Christ. Grant them to flee to the cross of the Savior whilst there is yet the day of opportunity. And for those of us who have sought you and found you, 
Grant, O Lord, that we always glory and revel in that great eternal sovereign plan of salvation, that indeed we seek You because You first sought us. Grant, O Lord, then that we continue as those who profess Your name to walk in Your ways such as to please You, and look for that great day, O Lord, when You will take us to be with Yourself whether it be through death or whether it be on that last great day, O Lord, when You will catch up, translate all those who are yet alive to be with the Lord in the air, to join with all the saints, and so be with the Lord forever and ever. Hear our prayer, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. As we prepare to come to our Lord's table, we come to sing the tune uh, to the hymn 211, See the Conqueror Mounts in Triumph. We are going to sing it to alternative tune. The melody is uh, number 400, but the hymn 211, See the Conqueror Mounts in Triumph. Please rise to sing if you are able.
How can we please God? 